Hello, this is Jeff Vanderstelt, Executive Director of Saturate and host of the Saturate podcast. Saturate exists to serve and equip leaders to start and strengthen unified gospel city movements that lead to gospel saturation, to the end that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to meet Jesus through his church on mission everywhere and every day. We believe this is going to require, as Jesus prayed in John 17, that the church is unified in their region together, collaborating around five key initiatives, which we see in Acts 13 and 14, which are citywide prayer, leader health, disciple-making strategies, serving the city, and starting new churches and new kingdom initiatives. Presently, we've been spending some time on the issue of leader health, and I've had the privilege of speaking with several different leaders who are experts in this area. Today, I'm gonna share I want to share some of uh, what I've been learning, and hopefully it'll serve you as you think about the reality of your emotional needs. I'm calling it feeling your way to Jesus, because what I've found is that God has made us as emotional beings with access to our real needs through our feelings. Now, here's what I want to start with. I want to ask this question as we think about the topic of our emotions leading us to be needy for Jesus. First of all, here's the question. Do you want to be known as needy? Maybe another way to think about it. Do you want to be known as weak? The answer, I think, for most of us is no way. In fact, I think we've wrongly assumed that being needy or being weak is the opposite of being spiritually mature. And yet the scriptures have a very different approach to our recognition of being needy and weak. In fact, the Apostle Paul, when asking God to remove this thorn in his flesh three times, hears this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will more gladly boast of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the Apostle Paul knew that the means to spiritual strength was an acknowledgement of our, our weakness and need. See, the story starts this way. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, we read in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I want to pause before going any further. This is a conversation being had in the Godhead. Uh, we now know, we call this the Trinity, but God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are having this, are having this conversation. And the statement is, it's not good that man should be alone. Now, I, I want to note that Adam doesn't know he's alone. How would he? He doesn't know any other existence other than being the only man around. There is not another human. So he wouldn't even understand the concept necessarily of loneliness. But what God does next is really important. The text continues, Now, out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
here's the here's the picture. You can imagine all these animals are being brought to Adam, and we know because of the narrative later in Noah's story that they're probably male and female being brought to him, and he's naming them. And God has him do it long enough until Adam is now aware that there is no one for him, that he actually is alone, that he doesn't have what they have. And so it's like God is creating a perfect situation to make Adam aware of his need. He now feels lonely. I want to pause there because I think a lot of times we can despise our circumstances. We can uh, have a sense that we want to get out of the thing we're in, but it's very likely the very thing you might be in is God's means of awakening you to your need for him. The text continues in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here you have longing fulfilled. I want you to just imagine the scene that this woman comes upon. Here is a man who has been asleep, just had surgery, is in absolute state of neediness, and she's strong. She's coming with health, with strength, with vitality, and she's different than the man. And she is a suitable helper for his neediness. And so the the woman clearly knows that she's here to help the man. The man wakes up in his state of, of sleep and neediness, and his immediate response is longing being fulfilled in the statement, this at last. The text continues, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. See, here's, here's the picture. They both are needy for each other. They're naked, but they're not ashamed. They're, they have got to, in their nakedness, realize not only are they vulnerable, but because they're different, they actually are needy for one another. And I love the way this ends. They're not ashamed. They're not ashamed of being needy for each other. They're not ashamed of being vulnerable with one another. In fact, they embrace it fully. And this is how God originally created us to be. He created us to be needy for others, to be needy for him. And in that neediness, be vulnerable with our needs to one another so that we will actually have relationship. See, here's how it works. And I'm borrowing this from some other authors like Chip Dodd, who wrote The Voice of the Heart, and Jeff Schulte, and Phil Herndon, who wrote the study guide that uh, comes with that book. But here's how it works. If I feel, I need. And if I then need, I'll have desire. If I desire, I'll long. And if I long, I will hope and look outward to God and others. I want to say that again. If I feel then I become aware of my needs. This is how God made you. And if that, I, if I then know I have a need, then I can actually have a desire to have that need met. And that internal desire to have the need met will push me to look outward, which is what leads me to long. I'm reaching out for the need to be met. And if I long and reach out for the need to be met, then I actually am expressing hope that it will be met. And this is what leads me 
into relationship with God and people. I want to say that in a different way. Feelings are what make us aware of what we need. And then being needy is what opens the door to relationship. If I don't have need, if I don't feel needy, if I'm not aware that I need another, then I won't actually reach out relationally to another. Now, this is the way you're born. I mean, you and I were born with the part of our brain that feels and is aware of our feelings being 95% developed. So when a baby comes out of the womb, the thing we're listening for is, does this baby cry? And if this baby cries, then we know that this baby is aware of its neediness. And therefore, it will make its needs known through crying. And a good attuned parent is going to be fully aware of that and pay attention to their children. And when when their child cries, they know what kind of a cry it is. Is this a sad cry, a hungry cry, an angry cry? What kind of cry? Because the kind of cry that the baby has is an indication of the need the baby is feeling. And babies don't edit themselves. (laughs) It just comes out. And of course, when they start to get words that they put to their feelings, then they start to talk out loud about what they actually need. And sadly, I think I've been guilty over the years of calling this the terrible twos, and I think it needs to be changed to the expressive twos, that this is the time in which I start giving voice to my need. I start putting words to my feelings. And yes, every child is still, you know, not perfectly expressing these out, but they are given by God a voice to make their needs known through feeling their feelings and telling the truth about their neediness to those who they can trust. Sadly, for many of us, we were told at some point in our life that feelings are to be avoided. They're not to be trusted. And I understand where that came from. In some cases, we we found ourselves trusting in our feelings to tell the truth about God and the world. And our feelings don't always tell the truth about God and the world and even our own selves, but they do tell the truth about where we're at in the moment in terms of our neediness. And the problem is the reason why we despise our neediness and therefore try to impair or stuff our feelings is because we were born into a broken world. So let's go back to Genesis 3. After God creates man and woman, and it even says that then the man, uh, you know, God says, for this very reason, now a man will leave this father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And uh, well, the good news about that story, by the way, is that there is a redemption part of that. For many of us, we think, man, you know, I was shaped by my broken family. I'm going to, I'm just doomed to repeat the same mistakes. And that idea that one that we leave our father and mother and we cleave to another and start a new family is an opportunity for us to say, no, we get to start anew. In fact, that ultimately is pointing to Jesus as the true bridegroom who marries his bride, the church, and starts a brand new reality and brings will ultimately bring in a new creation. So there is good news. We're not stuck in our past. But we do need to be, to be aware of what has formed us and shaped us in ways that are keeping us from being needy for God and one another. So Genesis 3 continues, The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, let's remember in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that man and woman were created in the image of God and made in his likeness. So they're already like God in the way God intended them to be like him. But this must this is a different kind of promise or let's call it a, a lie, uh, that, that is actually being sold to them. It's this idea that they won't actually be needy for God. That's really, the, that's really the offer that the serpent is giving them, is that God knows that, that you need him, that, you, that he's holding out on you. In, another, in other words, he, he could actually give you this new life where you don't, absolutely, you don't need him anymore. You can be absolutely free of any sense of dependency on him which is, I think, the promise that many of us are given when we're told not to be needy and not to be weak. Like, you can be a self-made person, and you don't have to need anybody, which is, first of all, a lie, and second of all, incredibly destructive. It really does lead to death, because death in the, in the Hebrew scriptures is also uh, defined as separation. And so this idea of death is not just separation of when my soul leaves the body, though it is that, but it's also separation internally. When I get disintegrated, when I no longer can relate to myself in a healthy way, and I can therefore not relate to people in healthy ways, and and then I can't relate even to the created reality around me in a healthy way. And so death shows up in many different forms. And in this particular passage, the woman sees that the tree was good for the food. Uh, for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was desired to make one wise. So she took some of it, and she ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then both of their eyes were, both of them had their eyes opened, and they knew they were naked. Now they were naked before, but they were unashamed. So now we have a, a kind of a toxic shame about their nakedness, a, a self contempt about their neediness. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. He said to him, where are you? Now, pause here. None of us think God doesn't know where they're at. So what is God doing? Why is God asking Adam, where are you? Well, God is simply inviting Adam to locate himself. In other words, to say, do you know where you are? Do you know what is going on? And notice the answer that Adam gives. And if you, like me, believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired by God, that the Holy Spirit led the writers of Scripture to write down what they wrote intentionally in the original manuscripts for our good, then you pay close attention to the answer when God says, where are you? And this is what he says. The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. There's an emotion. There's a feeling, fear, because I was naked and I hid myself. So when God asked the question of Adam, where are you? The answer is an emotion. The emotion is what Adam felt. Now, what did Adam do? Instead of feeling it and embracing his neediness, because if you feel fear, you realize you need help, you need refuge, you need protection from somebody bigger than you, someone wiser than you, someone who has, has resources you don't presently have. 
See, fear is is a, uh, an awareness that I'm in a dangerous place and that I'm limited in my ability to navigate through it. And Adam, instead of running to the source of protection, help, and refuge, which would be God, runs away. In other words, instead of feeling his fear and knowing his need and then running to the one who could actually help him, he wants to impair or stuff his feelings, not feel afraid, instead try to take control. And the impairment or the ignoring of that neediness that his fear is giving him leads him not to run to help, but to run from help. Instead of getting a relationship with God who can give him exactly what he needs, he runs away from that relationship and into a place of hiding. Now, here's how it works. If your feelings are pushing you into relationship, in other words, if you're actually moving toward help in a healthy way, not in a a codependent way or an enmeshed way where you don't know the beginning and end of yourself and the beginning and end of another, but rather it's leading you to healthy relationships. If your feelings are pushing you into healthy relationship with God and people, then you are appropriately experiencing your emotions and becoming needy in the way God intended you to for him and for others. On the other hand, if you're if you're impairing your feelings, you'll actually be running away from relationships. So you can know that you're not feeling the kind of uh, reality of your need as God intended if every time you experience an emotion, you run away from people, especially healthy people and, and are really running away from relationship with God. So God, God has made you to be aware of your needs through your feelings, and then your feelings can make you aware of a unique expression of need that you can find in a healthy relationship with God and with people. If we move forward in the scriptures, we're given this beautiful set of songs and prayers in the Psalms. And throughout the Psalms, you see this process of acknowledging out loud our need, our neediness through feelings, whether it's Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or many others where it's like, I feel like you've left me or abandoned me or my enemies. It seems to me that you just want to keep blessing them. (laughs) What's wrong with me? And if you read a lot of the Psalms, especially the Psalms of lament, you have this true hearted expression of neediness through our emotions. And the process really looks like admitting out loud my neediness through my feelings, through my experiences in a place where I know I'm accepted by God. So I admit out loud my neediness. I know that there's an acceptance even in my neediness. So I don't have to be ashamed of it. I don't have to hide it, but I get to be vulnerable with others. And then that leads to a a process of attunement where, where God and I attuned together. In fact, that statement in the scriptures where it says that his face shines upon us, or maybe some of you have even heard that as a blessing at the end of a, a, of a church gathered together where we hear, may his face shine upon you and give you peace. And that idea of his face shining on us is another way of saying, may he reflect back to you uh, what is true. And so when I feel sad, God's face can shine back on me, not only saying, yes, There's a reason for sadness in this world, but I'll bring comfort to your sadness. And when I'm rejoicing, God's face shines on me. And it's, think of shining like a mirror, like he reflects back to me the reality of what's going on inside of me, 
but then ultimately he gets to to realign me to what is true of himself and of the world. And so you see this in the Psalms where they have this process of admitting out loud their need in a place of acceptance where God is not going to run away from them. And then there's this attunement at a heart level where we get to feel our feelings with somebody else who's, who is aware of us, who sees us, whose face can shine on us. And I, I believe this isn't just meant for us and God. I do believe that God wants us to find this same kind of experience in community with one another. And then we get to attachment, because when we have those kinds of spaces where we can admit our neediness in a place of acceptance, where we can attune to the reality of our neediness together, then we start to experience a genuine kind of love for one another, because we can show up, be accepted, be seen, be known, and we aren't going to be left. People aren't going to leave us. And this is the hope of our relationship with God, but then it is meant to be experienced in the church where we can find a place where we can admit our need in a community of acceptance where people attune with us honestly around our neediness and feelings and know that they're not going to leave. We can have true attachment or as Jim Wilder wrote about in his book, Renovated, we can experience the true hesed love of God, the love that will never leave, the love that will never forsake. And not only do we want that in, in our relationship with God, and God promises that that will be the case, but we do need that in relationships with one another. And that leads us to the last step, which is then we can experience alignment, where we can actually have God align our, our reality to his truth. Now, it's interesting, Jesus, when he comes on the scene and preaches his longest sermon, as it's recorded in Matthew, we hear him start his very sermon this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He starts with this statement of blessedness around being needy, that if you will feel your neediness, if you will recognize that you are poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And the next, very next statement, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is in Matthew 5, and that, that's verse 3 and 4. He continues, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, the, king, the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Now, every one of those statements in Matthew 5 is a statement of need. And in every case, Jesus said, you're blessed if you know you're needy. And then he goes on and says that you'll actually receive what your neediness demands. Now, Jesus himself was very needy. In fact, I think he's the best example of this. He, he knew his needs, and he knew what he needed to do with them. In fact, in John 5, 19 and, uh, verse 19 and verse 30, he says this, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Then he says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. See, Jesus knew his neediness and he felt his feelings. He felt sadness. The prophets say he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We know that he felt sadness because he wept over Jerusalem. He said, how long have I wanted to gather you together like a mother had and gathers her chicks? And at his friend Lazarus's tomb, when Jesus arrives and Lazarus has already died and been in the tomb for a while, Jesus weeps 
Now, we know that he's going to raise them because we know the rest of the story, but Jesus doesn't just move past his humanity, his, his feelings, his deep, deep sadness. No, he feels and he weeps. I think sometimes we are so quick to try and move people past their emotions so that they won't be needy. And I think in many cases, it's because we're uncomfortable ourselves being around need. How many times have you been with somebody and they're expressing deep sadness and you quickly try to uh, get them past it, saying, you know, it's going to be okay. God's going to work it all out. And we use actually truthful statements, but sometimes we need to hold back like Job's friends needed to do and just sit with somebody in their sadness and believe Jesus' words that if someone really does feel their sadness, if they really do mourn, they will be blessed because they'll receive comfort, which means they'll receive a relation, relational provision from God, that he will come and be near the brokenhearted. Jesus felt sadness fully. Jesus also felt anger. Remember how he turned the temple tables over because they were making it hard for people to get to God. He, they were keeping the Gentiles from getting access to the God who was the God of all nations. His anger gave him an ability to get through the pain of the cross for the joy set before him. He was able to endure the suffering for our sins because he was so angry about what sin was doing to us. And he was so angry for us to get saved from it that he was willing to do whatever it took for our salvation. In fact, he's his anger gives him the ability to cry out with a loud voice, it is finished. And before he says that, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus felt anger. He was probably the angriest man that ever lived because he was most fully human and fully alive. Jesus felt fear. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he cries out, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And it says as he, as he prayed and cried out to God, he sweat like drops of blood. He was agonizing over this reality of facing the horrific pain and suffering of the cross. It was the worst execution known to man at the time. And so he felt fear. And in his fear, he cried out to the one who can help him. And that's what each one of these emotions do. In our sadness, we cry out for comfort. In our anger, we, we get a passion and a voice to stand up for what is right and against all the injustice in the world. In our fear, we realize we need help. And Jesus cries out to the one who can help him. And even on the cross, he cries out again. And he knows that he is ultimately going to be saved from the grave, that, that he will be raised up again. But he still cries out. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't stuff it. He doesn't pretend that it's, that, that it's not a big deal. He feels it fully. And Jesus felt hurt. Judas betrayed him. His friends, his friend Peter denied him. The rest of them left him. And only John's there at the cross at the end. Super painful. 
not only emotionally painful, but he also experienced the physical pain of the cross. He understands what it's like to be wounded because he was wounded for our transgressions. And it is by his wounds that we are now healed. See, Jesus felt the hurt so that he could bring the healing to you and me. And Jesus was so lonely. He felt the loneliness of absolute rejection at the cross. As he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus gets us. He knows what we're going through. He felt what we feel. In fact, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And that word sympathize means to feel what you feel with you while you're feeling it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel what we feel with us while we're feeling it. But we have in him one who in every respect has been tested just like we are, but without sin. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. And listen to this this phrase, to help us in our time of need. Our neediness is the means by which we move toward the one who feels what we feel with us while we're feeling it so that we can have everything we need from Jesus. He feels with us so that we will run to him. And he also feels with us so we can feel with one another. In fact, Philippians 2 says this in verse 1 and 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, there's that word again, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, Paul's saying, I want you to attune with one another. I want you to feel with one another so that you can attach to one another, so that you can actually align to what is true of who I am and what I've done for you in Christ and who you are as a result. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 25, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, in other words, stop pretending, stop hiding, stop deceiving, Instead, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. And listen how he tells you to speak the truth. The very next phrase is really important. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's what Paul says. He says, I want you to put away falsehood. I want you to tell the truth to each other. And you know how you're going to do that? You're going to feel. Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Now, I used to believe that meant when I'm having a fight with somebody, or especially my wife, that before we go to bed, we've got to we got to fix this. Like we've got to resolve it. We got to reconcile before we go to sleep. And I've since learned that one, one, that is not what this text means, and two, that's actually not very wise. For most of us, when we're getting to the end of ourselves and we're fighting, when we can't work it out and we're tired and it's the end of the day, it's probably better to go to sleep and wake up the next morning refreshed to be able to face each other in a much more clear-minded way. But what this is saying is it's saying, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger. In other words, don't put it in the dark. Don't stuff it. Don't impair it. Don't pretend like it doesn't exist. Don't hide it. 
speak truthfully to each other. And you do that bit by being honest about what you're feeling. He could have just as easily said, be sad and do not sin. Be hurt and do not sin. You know, feel your, your pain and do not sin. Don't stuff it in the dark. Be honest. Tell the truth about your neediness to one another. So here's the question I want to ask you as we come to a close. Where are you? If God were asking you that right now, where are you? Are you sad? We've been through a lot of loss these last several years. Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Tell the truth to God about your sadness. Invite him into that space so he can comfort you by his spirit. And maybe you need to say, share that with some other people as well. For many of us, we have tried not to be sad, but the problem is if you don't feel your sadness, it's going to go somewhere, and it usually leads to a kind of self-pity where we need others to feel sad for us. Where are you? Are you afraid? We've had a lot, to, a lot of fear in these last few years. There's good reason for some of that fear. Some of it's not based on truth, but some of it is. There's been some real dangerous times that we've gone through. If you feel your fear, you'll know you need help. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because it tells us I need help from God, which leads me to put my faith in someone who's bigger and stronger than me, and I ask him for wisdom to navigate a dangerous world. That's what all the wisdom literature is about. If I don't feel my fear and I try to pretend like I have no fear, I end up trying to control uncontrollable situations, which leads to anxiety. And generally, it leads to raging against anybody out there that seems like they're a threat to my sense of being control. Where are you? Are you hurt? Do you need healing? Feel your hurt. He's near to the brokenhearted. It's by his wounds that we're healed. Tell him the truth about your hurt. Because if you don't, you try to impair it, try to pretend like it's not a big deal, you'll eventually just find yourself full of resentment and want revenge against those who've hurt you. Are you lonely? Like Adam, maybe you don't even know you're lonely, but you're alone. Feel your loneliness and invite God to come and be with you. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He truly sees you and knows you and wants you to know that he loves you just as you are. See, he wants you to have real intimacy, that you with God, God with you, truly loved, truly accepted, is your reality. And some of you are needy for other people, too. I want to encourage you, feel your neediness so that you'll actually want relationship. If you don't, you just become very apathetic, and you just decide you're never going to be vulnerable to anybody. Really hard-hearted. Where are you? You have some anger stirring up? Good. Feel that anger because it's a passion for something God wants. Uh, let me clarify. There's a difference between rage and anger. Rage is uh, I'm raging against people. Anger is I'm angry for people. I'm angry for justice. I'm angry for good. I'm angry for something righteous. Some of you need to get angry about some things and speak out for people for the passion God's given you and the reason why he's putting you on the earth. Some of you have just said no to it and you become depressed and you're becoming detached in your relationships. Where are you? 
feeling shame? Well, there's a healthy shame that says, I'm limited. And that leads to humility and a neediness for people and attunement with others. But for some of you, you're feeling self-contempt. You continue to look down on yourself saying, I should have done more. I shouldn't have done that. And uh, there's something wrong with me fundamentally. And and God wants you to know that he loves you as you are. You don't have to hide. You don't have to perform. You don't have to become a workaholic to somehow climb the ladder. Accept who you are and your limited reality, limited humanity. Be kind to yourself as he's kind to you. Where are you? Feeling guilt? Express that to God and know that because of what Christ has done at the cross for you, you are forgiven of your sins if you put your faith in him and you'll experience freedom from self-condemnation. And you know what this leads to? is a deep, blessed life. The word for that is gladness. Joy with sadness. Being a, a limited human in a broken world, but finding our needs met in Christ and each other, which leads to genuine celebration, which is what we need so badly. It's what Jesus promises and offers. Where are you? Give words to your feelings and go to God with your needs, and then share that in a community that loves you, loves God, and continues to lead each other to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of every longing we've ever had. Where are you? I want to take some time to pray. I want you to identify where you're at, what you're feeling, what you need. I want to bring that to God in prayer now. Father, I pray for those who are feeling sadness. That you would bring comfort. That you'd help them to accept the reality of what they've lost but to press into you for your comfort. Father, for those who are experiencing and feeling fear, would you be near to them and provide help, refuge, and protection? Or grow their faith. Fear is not the opposite of faith. Fear is the reminder that we need to put our faith in you, someone who's bigger and stronger, who has more than we do. And Lord, I pray you'd give them wisdom to navigate whatever they're facing, as they trust in you. For those who are feeling hurt, would you bring healing? Would you attend to their wounds? Would you give them courage to face what they've gone through, but also to forgive where needed? Father, for those who are feeling lonely, I pray you'd be near to them, that you'd make yourself known to them, that you'd let them know that you see them, that you love them. Father, for those who are experiencing anger against unrighteousness, crying out for justice, I pray you'd give them the ability to be angry and not sin, but in their anger, represent your heart. Give them your heart, Lord. Help them to respond as Jesus has and will. For those who are feeling shame, Father, I pray that you'd help them to hear these words from Psalm 139, that they are beautifully and wonderfully made, that you know them, that you see them, that you design them, that their limited humanity is not a bad thing, but a good thing. It's a, a gift so that they might receive humility 
and realize that they need you and they need others, that they aren't enough all by themselves. Father, I pray for those who feel guilt, that you would lead them to the cross, that they would cry out for forgiveness, and you would give them freedom from their sin and self-condemnation. And in all this, would you help us to feel glad, blessedness, because in all of this, you are enough. So we celebrate you and we give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for all that you felt and all that you did and all that you are for us in our neediness today. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for listening. I do hope this was helpful to you. I want to encourage you, if you haven't accessed the resources that we have at saturatetheworld.com, I encourage you to become a member uh, and and begin to take advantage of all the resources that we're putting up there through video and through written content. Also, uh, some of you are listening and you would love to see if you could take what I said and begin to implement it in a much more holistic way into the discipleship strategies of your churches or your groups. And so we're going to be spending more time on that in the coming days. And in particular, we also have created a new offering called the Saturate Disciple Making Innovation Lab. Uh, If that's something that you're interested, just go to the site, saturatetheworld.com, and you'll find a link that will tell you more about that because it's our desire to help churches really redesign uh, the work that they're doing so it, it approaches discipleship from a wholehearted way. Again, thanks for being with us. I hope this blessed you today.